There are certain scenes in the scripture that are so packed, full of suspense and good material, that I wish guys like Spielberg or Franco Zeffirelli could put them into film. And this is one of those scenes. It's hard to get the tension and the uh, emotion behind the scene unless you were really there and see yourself as there. But in Acts chapter 26, it's the time when Paul gets to give his personal testimony before Herod Agrippa II. He's been waiting for times like this. In fact, the Lord promised Paul that he would give his testimony before many kings. And his testimony in this chapter is so powerful that it elicits a response that we're going to get to and actually focus on that response because you've gotten that response before if you're a Christian. You've had people who, as you share what God has done in your life, have given you the same kind of spiel that Festus gives to Paul the Apostle as he shares his personal testimony here. And you know, everybody has a personal testimony who's a believer. And it's one of the most powerful tools that you as a Christian have. Because it shows that the truth changes lives. It's something that people can't take away from you. It's not just words on a page. It's not somebody else's experience. It's your own experience. And that makes a lot of difference. Jesus Christ hasn't been on the earth in physical form for 2,000 years. But he continues to change people's lives. He continues to influence the way people think and live and are motivated. And that's the power of personal testimony. When you give to people your testimony, the experience of what Jesus has done for you, you will be accused, as Paul is in this chapter, of being a fool by some, of being nuts, of being crazy. Not everyone's going to sympathize with you. In fact, in some cases, evangelists are seen by the world as manipulators of weak minds. Well, it's just the weak people that listen to that and they are exposed to enough of this stuff and those who are weak and don't have the intelligence will fall for it. And it's only the foolish people that become Christians. In fact, uh, one time a, a drunk man was accused of being deluded, that his Christian faith was just one big dream, a delusion. And he responded by saying, thank God for the delusion. He said, it has put clothes on my children, shoes on their feet, bread in their mouths. It's made a man of me and put joy and peace in my home where there has been just hell. If this is a delusion, may God send it to all of the slaves of alcoholism everywhere. Now picture the scene with me. We're not going to be able to read all of it, but imagine that you're in Caesarea and you're in a huge amphitheater that seats thousands of people. It's a time of great pomp and ceremony, and the Romans loved ceremonies. They just decked themselves out on this day to hear the trial of a Jewish preacher named Paul the Apostle. There's several notable people who've come into this courtroom. There's Festus, there's, well, Felix is gone, there's Agrippa, there's the army guards, and Bernice, the wife of Herod, and they're all sitting around in great pomp and circumstance to watch and to hear the testimony of Paul the Apostle. The session begins back in chapter 25, and probably the way it occurred was this. First, Festus, not Festus Hagen from Gunsmoke, Festus, the Roman governor, who presided over the Jewish nation, walks into the auditorium with a purple robe. The people would rise. 
Behind him would be the chief of the army. Behind the chief of the army would be all of these guards stationed with banners with the seal of Rome. Then in would walk Herod Agrippa with his robes flowing, and next to him his wife Bernice. I should say his sister Bernice, for she was both his wife and his sister. They had an incestuous relationship, and this is one of the reasons the Jews hated their guts, because of the Jewish laws against incense. And already it sounds like a a soap opera. They walk in. The court is in session. All of this ceremony over Paul the Apostle. And finally, Ephesus says, bring in the soldier or bring in the prisoner soldiers. And they open the door and Paul walks in. And back in chapter 25, in verse 23, we read, And so the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, and they entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. (laughs) It's really a humorous scene, because if the physical description of Paul the Apostle is accurate, according to the history that we have, he was a short man with bold legs, He kind of waddled. He was bald-headed. He had a hooked nose. And his eyebrows were grown together as one. And he had squinty eyes. Bulging squinty eyes. He sort of looked like Marty Feldman, basically. (laughs) He's in chains and he's in the rags of a prisoner. And he stands before Agrippa and Bernice and all of these banners and soldiers. Just kind of squinting at them. The accusations are read, verses 24 to 27. And then, in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 26, Paul begins to give his testimony. Now already, what a contrast. A man sitting on the throne who's a king, yet a slave to sin. A man who's a prisoner, yet an ambassador for the king of kings. One man on the throne, one man in chains. Paul the Apostle, though in chains, is very free, enjoying his freedom in Christ. One man a king, representing the Roman government, but he's in bondage to sin. One has it all, it seems, only by this world's standards, but Paul has it all when it comes to spirituality. Interesting thing about Paul the Apostle is that he had the audience of many great men. He stood before magistrates in Gentile cities. He will stand before Nero in Rome. He stands before Herod Agrippa. He stood before Felix. He stood before the Sanhedrin. And not one time is this guy intimidated. That would be intimidating. To stand before rulers as such, people who have the power of life and death over an entire nation, over the entire known world, and yet not be intimidated. Every time we read about Paul the Apostle, he's bold in his faith, sure in his testimony, never flinches one time. That's important, and there's a secret why. It's the same secret that Elijah had in the Old Testament. Very bold. He stands before King Ahab, and as he's coming up the hill to meet King Ahab, Ahab says, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are, king. Now, he just spoke to a man who could have his head, his neck shortened. 
But he stands before him and he says, Listen, Ahab, as God lives before whom I stand, it will not rain for three and a half years. Now that was his secret. As God lives before whom I stand. If you live in the presence of God, you're not going to fear man. And it's been aptly put, if you kneel before God, you can stand before anybody. Paul, Elijah, and others stood before God, lived in the presence of God, so they didn't care who they were standing. If they could stand in front of the president, they could stand in front of the king. But they'd been in God's presence. And after being in God's presence, they could boldly encounter any man. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. And the way to get out of the snare of the fear of man is to live in the presence of God. Elijah did, and Paul the Apostle did. So he stands before him. And the chapter is his testimony. He motions with his hand, as was the Roman and custom of the day. And Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. He said, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused of by the Jews. Especially because you're an expert in all the customs and the questions to which have to do with the Jews, therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth was spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem. All the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and I am judged for the hope of the promise that made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope, say, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. I love the way Paul had his style. Listen to the next statement. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raised the dead? King, let me tell you why I'm here. I'm here because I'm a Jew and I believe all the promises God made to all the rest of these guys who are accusing me. I happen to believe it's true. I believe it's so true that I believe it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. Now he brings up the resurrection because Festus said, Hey, you know, Agrippa, we have this weird prisoner. He keeps talking about this guy named Jesus, whom he says is still alive, though we know he's, done, he's dead. And he says, why do you think it an incredible thing that God raised the dead? See, the question really is, how big is your God? To the natural mind, to the natural man, a resurrection is totally impossible. But why do you think it an incredible thing that God raised the dead? Indeed, I thought, myself, I thought, I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. They were put to death. I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In the next several verses, Paul the Apostle speaks about what happened to him on the way to Damascus, a story we've read a couple times already. We've gone through it in the book of Acts. But look at verse 18. I want to draw your attention. The Lord spoke to Paul and said, well, first of all, verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And that verse is a summary of what the gospel is all about. Look at it again. Verse 18. First of all, it relieves a person from darkness. Same verse. Secondly, it releases a person from the power of sin. It forgives a person. It gives a person an inheritance by faith. Now, he goes on, and look in verse 24. He's giving his testimony. And uh, there's an interruption. Festus has been listening carefully, probably his arms folded, with skepticism. He's heard it all before. He's visited Paul. He's listened to Paul for a couple years now. And now as the apostle is giving his testimony to Herod Agrippa II, whose grandfather killed the babies in Bethlehem, whose father killed James, cut his head off, You know, patience doesn't run in his family. All of a sudden, Festus, as he's hearing this, interrupts and he says with a loud voice, Paul, you're nuts. You are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. The phrase that he uses was a medical term for mental illness. Paul, you're unfit, man. You know, the lights are on, but nobody's home. You're one burrito short of a combination plate. You're nuts. The accusation is one that you've heard from time to time. If you're a bright and shining light, if you're a witness, you've heard that. You're nuts. You're crazy. You're beside yourself. The accuser was Festus, a secular man, a dignified Roman, the cream of the crop, The kind of a person who's used to authority, organization, getting things done from a secular perspective. He's hired by Rome, which was known as a society without God. And as a secular man, he responds as only a secular worldly person would. You got to be kidding. You've been studying too much. Your much learning has made you mad. Have you ever heard people say that? I remember when I was a brand new believer and I was reading the Bible voraciously, and I hope you still are, even if you're an older Christian now. And I remember people saying, oh, you know, you better better not read the Bible too much. I've known people who have gone crazy reading this book too much. It can do weird things to you. Paul, you're much learning. All those parchments that you sit up late at night and read, it's driving you mad. It's driving you nuts. When Festus accused Paul of being crazy, he represented the voice of the secular world. As I've said, a voice that you've heard before. Folks, don't expect people to understand or sympathize with you as a Christian. Don't expect when you evangelize for people to tap you on the back and say, Good job! I'm just, wow, great. They're not going to sympathize with you. They're going to be antagonistic. It's happened all throughout the Bible that people who represented God were antagonized for their faith. And I want to give you a few examples of that. Elijah, whom we just mentioned, in his ministry, one day took one of the sons of the prophets, a minister in training. And he said, you know what I'd like you to do? Here, take a flask of oil, go to the house of Jehu, knock on the door. When he opens the door, pour oil all over his head. And say, God anointed you to be the king of Israel, and then run. So this prophet goes down, 
has a flask of oil, knocks on the door, pours oil on the head of Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. Says, God anointed you as king of Israel. You're going to avenge the enemies of Israel. Jezebel is going to be dead meat because of the judgment of God through you upon Ahab and her house. And he ran out the door. Now the young men who were with Jehu, who saw him come in, said, What did this babbler want? For we know that he's a madman. He's crazy. When in reality he was a prophet of God, but he was accused by the secular world of being a madman. Crazy. In the book of Hosea. Hosea is a watchman to the nation of Israel. And yet the people respond to Hosea by saying, The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. And you know what? It happened to Jesus. One day Jesus had a multitude of people who were gathered around him. There were so many people around him that the Bible says he didn't even have enough time to eat. His brothers in the flesh that he'd grown up with and his mother were there to see him. And they saw the way Jesus was operating in his ministry, that people were crowding around him and Jesus wouldn't take the time to eat. And the scripture says his own kin tried to lay hold of him and take him by force because they thought he was nuts. He was crazy. Once when Jesus was teaching on the subject of being the good shepherd, laying down his life for the sheep, it says there was a division among the Jews because of Jesus' sayings. And many said, he has a demon and he is mad. Why do you listen to him? It happened also to Paul the Apostle. It happened here, but in 1 Corinthians he said, It pleased God through the foolishness of my message. Preached to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. To the Gentiles or to the Greeks, foolishness. He wrote in the same epistle when he said, The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. They can't understand him. It's something that is spiritually discerned. In the fourth chapter, he said, we are fools for Christ's sake. In 2 Corinthians, he said, if we are beside ourselves or if we are crazy, it is for God. When Paul was in Athens, he was preaching the gospel in the marketplace and in the synagogue. And the Epicureans and the Stoics said, what is this babbler saying? They accused him of being nuts. Now, that's always been the case. And I learned that personally. When I first came to know Christ, and I was up in the San Jose, California area, and I came back down to the Southern California area, I first told my parents. Second, I told my best friend. Third, I went to the people that I graduated from high school with and told them all about what Jesus had done in my life. And I got the same result from all of them. It's been a hard summer, right? You couldn't find a job up there. You weren't accepted in the university. You've been under a lot of stress. Relax, man. You'll be all right. It's a phase that people go through. I went through that phase once myself. Don't worry, you'll work your way out of it. Like Festus to Paul, your much learning drives you mad. That is a voice, not only of friends and of relatives, it's the voice of secularism today. Christianity is called unscientific, it's called unreasonable. People say you trade your brain in when you become a Christian for a Bible. I was accused of that. My college professors accused me of that. The voice of Festus is also the voice of modern psychology and sociology. Listen to this quote. 
Christianity is escapism. It is conditioned reflexes. Repeated exposure to the same message produces a type of spiritual hypnosis which one will mechanically react to in certain ways under certain conditions. It's the voice of the media. Have you ever noticed how the media portrays average Christians? When the media wants to bring up the whole issue of evolution versus creation, instead of bringing on somebody who's an expert in creationism and a scientist who believes in creation, they'll bring some preacher from the South with a Bible about that big, who really doesn't know much about the scientific uh, evidence, even biblical evidence, and you just sit in the courtroom and yell and scream and the news will capture that and broadcast it all over America. When they make a movie or a soap opera about a Christian, especially about a minister, notice how they stereotypically put that person. Look at Father Mulcahy on MASH. And when someone falls in the Christian world, Christian leaders and evangelists, the media is like sharks circling, waiting for someone to fall so they can put it on national television. I'm not saying we don't give them enough fuel for their fires. We do. But they're waiting for stuff like that. Jim and Tammy Baker's expose by Ted Koppel and Nightline had the highest ratings and was played up by Nightline the most of any other broadcast they ever had, including the Challenger crashing, the attack of Libya when President Reagan ordered the planes in. It was Jim and Tammy Faye's fall that brought most national attention because of Nightline's exposure. And there's a basic message behind all of these things, which are, it's dumb to follow Jesus. It's not the voice of reason. Your much learning has driven you mad. Realize, folks, that people will react strongly in many cases, but it's not an attack against you. Jesus said the servant isn't greater than his Lord. If they've done it to me, they're going to do it to you. They're going to persecute you as well. In fact, listen, it can be a healthy sign. It can be a real healthy sign. The sign of success is not always people saying, well, that was wonderful. It could mean that you're not salty enough. One of the greatest, perhaps, signs that you're doing your job is that some people are going to get offended. That doesn't mean you purposely are rude to people, get in their face, yell at them, become obnoxious, but that you become salty enough that they're going to feel it. You know, in the old days, before they had medicine and anesthesia, when they wanted to clean a cut, they poured salt in the wound. You know what that feels like? Ouch! That's what it feels like. Well, the world is an open sore. You pour the salt of the gospel in it, it's going to hurt. The world is a dark place. You turn the light of the gospel on. Ever watch a person in a dark room when you turn the lights on? They hate it. Turn it off. It's a normal reaction. Look back in verse uh, 19. Paul says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem throughout all of the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Now you're going to find in these verses the reason for the accusation. The reason that Festus gets so bent out of shape is Paul's message. They should repent, turn to God, and do works 
that are befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now hold on for just a second. There are four statements that Paul makes in this chapter that outline his life. He's giving his testimony. He says many things about himself. But there's four statements that he makes that should be the statements or the testimony of every believer. First of all, look back in uh, verse 5. Paul the Apostle says, I lived as a Pharisee. That's his background. That's his past life. This was my past life. This is how I used to live. Look at verse 13. I saw a light. Verse 14. I heard a voice. Verse 19. I was not disobedient. Actually, there's five statements. And then verse 22. To this day I stand. There's a progression of thought there that ought to be every believer's testimony. This is who I was at one time. But I saw a light. The light was turned on. I was convicted of my sin. I saw the truth. I heard a voice. God spoke. He speaks in His Word. I knew that He was compelling me to come to Him. I was not disobedient, but I conformed to His image. I responded to His grace. And then finally, in verse 22, to this day I stand. Perseverance. I'm still following Him. It wasn't a one-time decision that I made months ago, years ago, but no more today. I stand to this day. Now, in those verses that we just read, Paul speaks about how God spoke to him and that Jesus would suffer, according to the prophets, rise from the dead. At this point, when he mentioned the resurrection from the dead, Festus became unglued, and the reason for his accusation that Paul was nuts is because you have a cynical, secular, Gentile mind up against the supernatural testimony of a believer. And those things don't match. There are so many folks that they say, basically their statement is, I allow no room for the supernatural. God doesn't do miracles today. There is no such thing as people being dead, rising again and living. That doesn't work. I'm scientific. I'm an empiricist. It's impossible. Therefore, Paul, you've got to be nuts. If you have experienced something I can't understand, then you must be nuts. If I can't fit it in the narrow canyons of my brain, if I can't completely contain it and understand it, it therefore must be invalid. You're nuts. You're mad. To speak of a resurrection is foolish. To speak of a heaven for the righteous and a hell for the unrighteous is foolish. To speak about inward peace and satisfaction, even on Monday mornings at work, is unreasonable. It's foolish to some people. Hence the accusation. And folks, it's part of the territory. Jesus was accused of it. Paul was accused of it. Elijah and others. Now, how do you handle it? That's the question. You are accused... Most of you hold jobs where you have, to some degree, unbelievers around you. You make contact with unbelievers. And sometimes you think, God, I hate this. I wish I worked around believers all the time. That would be so nice to work around Christians. Well, no, it's not. 
It's not always that great, believe me. Because you have certain expectations for believers. And sometimes believers act like unbelievers, sometimes worse than unbelievers. Well, how do you handle the accusations? Paul gives us that here in the next couple of verses. Oh, by the way, you can't escape. Excuse me, I should be honest with you. If you want to escape persecution, if you want to escape being hassled, being accused of being an idiot, there's ways to do it. First of all, don't let the light shine. Don't tell people you're a Christian. Don't preach the gospel at work or at home or anywhere. Just kind of put the, a bushel over the light. Just be quiet. Laugh at their stupid, dirty jokes. Go along with the crowd and they'll leave you alone. But if you make a stand boldly because living in the presence of God, kneeling in the presence of God, able to stand in the presence of any man, you'll get dogged. question is, how do you handle it? Well, look at Paul. Paul, you're beside yourself, Festus said. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. But I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also freely speak knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Actually, it's a, it's a question. He says, Paul, do you think in such a short time as this that you're going to make me become a Christian? It was a cynical question. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up. (laughs) That was enough. He was too convicted at that point. As well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man has done nothing worthy of death nor chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. How did he handle the accusation? You might want to first say, how would I handle the accusation? How do you feel when somebody comes up and accuses you of being brain dead? Because you're a believer. Accusing you of not thinking it through. Now, for some of you, that is the highest insult because you regard yourselves as intelligent. And you know what? Paul was intelligent. He was a scholar. He was a rabbi. He knew his stuff. He knew Greek secularism as well as Hebrew Phariseeism. He knew it all. How did he react? First of all, in love, not in retaliation. He didn't say, oh yeah, you think I'm nuts? Well, I think you're an idiot too. Come on, let's step outside. Paul responded in love. He just simply said, I'm not crazy, most noble Festus. He even used a title that would exonerate him. One of love, not retaliation. Calm. He didn't act like a madman. Do you remember when Saul threw the spear at David? What did David do? Did he throw a spear back? He ducked. And he got out of there. Festus throws this arrow of accusation. He did not retaliate. He ducked. He said, most noble Festus, I'm not crazy. I speak words and truth, words and reason. What did Jesus say to do when people react against the gospel? He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad because they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're in good company. 
They did it to those guys. Here is one of them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Peter said, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, instructing those who oppose him. And finally, Jesus said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And some people twist that. Some people are as harmless as serpents. And they're as wise as doves. And doves are basically stupid creatures. But they're gentle. So Jesus said, think, be appropriate, but make sure that it's gentle. That you don't strive. That you don't retaliate. But be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Or as another translation puts it, be tough-minded but tender-hearted. There's a right time to say the right words. And Paul the Apostle exercised that. Love, not retaliation. Secondly, in truth and reason, he defended the faith. He said, I'm not nuts. I'm speaking things that are reasonable, things that are honest, and things that people have seen. They're not done in a corner. And Festus, you might think I'm nuts, but Agrippa, I bet you believe me, don't you? Hey, what do you think? You can make me a Christian? Oh, that'd be awesome if you'd become a Christian. In fact, I wish you and everybody else was just like me, except I don't want you to have these chains. At that, Agrippa stood up and said, enough is enough, court adjourned. Love, not retaliation. Reason and truth, he defended the gospel. He appealed to reason and historical facts. One person put it this way, that my heart cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. You know, it was Kierkegaard in the 1800s, that Danish philosopher, who said that faith in God is not reasonable. Therefore, for a person to believe in God, he must take a leap of faith. But Paul's not saying, he's saying, I'm not taking a leap in the dark, I'm taking a leap in the light. I wish all of you guys would do the same. It's reasonable, it's historical, people have seen it, it's changed my life. It's reasonable. In love, not retaliation, and in truth and deference, he defends the faith. Josh McDowell and Don Stewart wrote a fine book. And in the end of their book, questions that people with tough minds ask, something like that, the name of the book. He recalls all of the people that he's met and spoken to about the gospel throughout the world. And he made an incredible statement. He said, between the two of us, we have spoken to millions of students and professors, businessmen and laymen, about the evidence for the Bible and Jesus Christ. We have probably not met more than half a dozen people who, after hearing the facts, still claimed an intellectual problem with accepting Christianity as true. In great love and patience, he said, I'm not nuts. Agrippa, I bet you believe me, don't you? But with that great opportunity, Agrippa said, enough is enough. I'm out of here. He missed the greatest opportunity of his life. It brings up two points that I want to close with. First of all, hearing does not automatically make you a Christian. Hearing truth week after week or day after day, depending on what situation you're in, or Christmas and Easter after Christmas and Easter, if you're the kind that attend church just at that time, does not make any difference, does not make any change automatically. It must be applied, and that's the truth in Agrippa's case. He heard. Festus had heard for two years. But the change did not come automatically. 
Second underlying point, responding to Jesus Christ does not automatically remove the chains in Paul's case. He responded to the gospel, he loved Jesus, he followed Jesus, but he'd got him into trouble. He was a prisoner. He went to Rome as a prisoner. Eventually, history says he was beheaded. Responding to the gospel, following Jesus, doesn't automatically remove chains so that you can say, oh, I'll always be healthy, I'll always be rich, I'll always have it made. But who would you rather be? A king, having heard it, having all of the materialism, but not responding and still being a slave to sin? Or a guy like Paul the Apostle, a prisoner in rags, in chains, but free? Well, when you think in terms of eternity, there's really only one choice. Your much learning has made you mad. There was a song years ago written by Chuck Gerard. It was called A Fool for Jesus. He said something like, People try to tell me that these are modern days and that I can't live my life this way. People try to tell me that I am just a fool. And at the end of the song he says, So I guess I'll be a fool for Jesus. That's what Paul the Apostle said. We are fools for Christ's sake. Expect to be hassled because you bear the truth. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And what you know what? The wolves are going to bark at you, and they're going to bite you, and they're going to chase you. If you go to the university and you say, I'm a believer in your class, they're going to go, dummy. Or they'll say, weak-minded person. Respond in love, not retaliation, and learn the truth to lovingly defend the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for examples like Paul, who was, in the eyes of Festus, a fool. He was insane. But Lord, you said that you have chosen even the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise and that you would make the wisdom of men foolishness. We thank you, Lord, that as Jesus said, you have not revealed these to the high and the mighty, but even to babes. I pray, Lord, that we who are believers would be content, if need be, to be a fool for the sake of Jesus, knowing that your wisdom puts to shame any wisdom of this world. We know that to many people to speak of a personal God, of heaven, of inward peace, of resurrection is foolishness. And the people will react strongly. I pray, Lord, we would not always seek a favorable reaction. We would just seek to present the truth in love, to not be obnoxious, to have our speech full of grace, seasoned with salt. Lord, thanks for this evening. Thanks for reminding us of your love. And thanks for reminding us of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be bold in our faith for Christ. Lord, I'd also pray for those who have been being called by you for a long time but have not responded. They've heard, they've listened, They've contemplated, they've pondered, but they've never made a commitment to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would woo them into your kingdom, that they would respond to Christ. In Jesus' name.